Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 83. You know, Everywhere we've gone in the story of the Kennedy case, well, it's turned into a wander. We're 83 episodes in, and we're still on the autopsy. When I look back and I think about the work that we did around the Zapruder film, you know, it started out as something like a day trip to a museum. What it ended up as was something much more. I mean, it was like spending a week inside of one of the Smithsonian buildings. There were just too many interesting artifacts to continue to look at when you were in this one particular and incredible place. If you've been to the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., really any of the Smithsonian buildings, or at least one of them that you really love, most of us have a favorite, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's so easy to get lost in the things that you love or find interesting. Well, I can tell you that at the beginning of the current wander that we are now in the midst of, that is the autopsy, I really had hesitations in doing any work in this area. This was a Smithsonian building, so to speak, that I just didn't want to enter and maybe had some preconceived notions about, too. You've heard that from me before. But you know, once inside, just like one of those Smithsonian buildings, once I entered, my curiosity and interest began to grow. I don't know, maybe it was for a myriad of reasons, but regardless, and like the previous Smithsonian experiences, when I finally leave the building, it may not top the list as my favorite, but it will still have been a worthwhile experience. I feel that way here. This wander is one that has been intellectually stimulating and has added to my own personal knowledge, curiosity, and wanderlust. And to me, it was, and continues to be, worth the wander. I hope it's been the same for you and that you'll stay patient as we finish it up. We have a little ways to go and some very interesting topics yet to come. Even though the photographs are one of the most important aspects of the forensics at the autopsy, I keep wanting to pivot away from John Stringer. Honestly, I am getting antsy to start covering Oswald so that we can learn more about who he was. That tells you one thing that your host here has Kennedy assassination ADD of sorts. But we can't leave the autopsy yet, and we can't leave Stringer yet, because there's more to listen to when it comes to Stringer, and it's important stuff. And like the broader analogy of the Smithsonian, as I said, we just can't leave yet, because the last few exhibits in the building are some of the best, and they really make the whole visit worthwhile. So today, we stay with Stringer, in a sense, but we introduce one of the most controversial aspects of the autopsy, the forensic review of the brain. There wasn't much left of President Kennedy's brain as a result of the horrific damage delivered by the gunshot or gunshots that day in Dallas, but there was enough left to perform procedures on it, and on the night of November 22nd, what was left of it was removed. It was placed in a formalin fixer, where it would await the return of the pathologist and the performance of a process called sectioning. One thing, among other forensic procedures that are routinely applied under these circumstances. 
sectioning can't be done right at the initial moment of the autopsy because the brain needs to remain immersed in the formalin fixer long enough to harden up. That then allows the examiners to precisely slice the brain into smaller sections, like the slicing of a loaf of bread. In those days, it was the only way to look inside and completely confirm the physical path taken by an object that penetrated the brain. Even today, there is no real substitute for sectioning an area. It's true physical evidence of precisely what happened. Although today, modern medical technology gives us 3D images that could locate and document the presence of metal particles and certain damage without sectioning. In 1963, sectioning the brain was the only true way to determine more precisely the three-dimensional path that the bullet, or bullets, or in Kennedy's case, what appears to be bullet fragments, took once the bullet, or bullets, penetrated the skull, and then broke apart as they entered into and traveled through the brain. This work on Kennedy's brain was done by the pathologists sometime after the original autopsy that was done the night of the 22nd. The truth is, we're not sure exactly when. We'll get into that during this episode. The work that was supposedly done on Kennedy's brain was included in the supplemental autopsy report that we reviewed in a previous episode. This supplemental autopsy performed on the brain became the subject of an intense review by members of the ARRB staff in the late 1990s, work done primarily by Doug Horn, building on work previously done by Andrew Purdy with others involved as well, including all the interview work performed by Jeremy Gunn and his colleagues. This topic was explored extensively as a result of all of that. What you will hear today is the formally documented theory set forth by Doug Horn on the ARRB staff that makes a pretty good case that after the night of the 22nd, two separate brain examinations took place. Only here is the thing. They were performed on two different brains. Obviously, one of them, not the president's. And the only reason something like this would have occurred is a circumstance where someone was trying to obscure the autopsy results and obscure what the actual review of Kennedy's brain was telling the forensic pathologists. So they didn't like what they saw in the first review, and so they found a second brain and performed a second review and used those results to record and support their findings. I know, I know, this is fantastic stuff. But again, this is not coming from a far-out fringe assassination researcher. This is coming from a memorandum prepared by Doug Horn contemporaneously as a member of the ARRB staff that conducted the official ARRB inquiries sanctioned by Congress in the 1990s. Yes, it was just an internal memorandum and it wasn't even addressed to anybody, but it clearly represents his thinking on the matter during that time frame. We'll hear from Stringer too, and some things he has to say here are very relevant. And one more thing, generally speaking, Keeping the original autopsy pictures out of plain view obviously helped to facilitate this sleight of hand for many years. And of course, there is the idea that some of the pictures in the official autopsy collection at the National Archives contain pictures of this second brain. That they are, indeed, not pictures of President Kennedy's brain. Forgeries, then. That's where Stringer's testimony once again comes into the picture. 
But there were other evidential elements that led the staff to believe that this incredible hoax had actually taken place. We'll hear them today. Like I said, most of today's material is taken from an official internal memo written by Doug Horn while he was a member of the ARRB research and investigative staff. Thankfully, the work of the ARRB was probably the world's last, best opportunity and attempt to find the truth out about the JFK assassination during the conduct of an official government investigation. Most of the work was conducted about 35 years after the assassination and at a point in time when so many of the participants in the JFK assassination story were, by that time, already up in their years if not already gone. Memory fade was certainly already a problem, but the research community and the public at large was really facing the reality that there weren't many years left to interview those who were really there in the moment. So what this group did was the last best effort by a very heroic group of people to whom the torch had been passed to in that decade. I have sometimes made a comment or two about what might have been asked at an ARRB hearing something that should have been asked but wasn't. But believe me, I am entirely grateful for what was asked and done, for without it, we would not be so far along in our pursuit of the truth. And what you will hear today from Doug Horn is a great example of the advancement of truth around the autopsy, as far out and fantastic as the evidence might be. Oh, and one more thing. This is a long and involved episode, so I have turned it into a two-part miniseries. <laughs> a miniseries inside of a miniseries, I guess. That means that you will have to listen to both episode 83 and episode 84 to get the entire details of today's story. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 83 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Doug Horn worked on the staff of the Assassination Records Review Board, the ARRB, for the final three years of the Review Board's four-year lifespan, from August 1995 through September 1998. He was hired as a senior analyst on the military records team, and he was later promoted to the position of chief analyst for military records, that is, the head of the military records team for the ARRB. Horn was not only involved in the location and release of U.S. military records on Cuba and Vietnam policy from 1961 through 1964, but he played an integral role in conducting both unsworn interviews and formal depositions of witnesses to and participants in JFK's autopsy at Bethesda Naval Hospital. And he was also involved in joint efforts between the ARRB and Kodak to both digitally preserve the photographic images of the autopsy and to conduct an authenticity study of the Zapruder film in the National Archives. He was an Ohio State University grad who majored in history. Horn understood a little about the military, too. He served as a junior officer in the U.S. Navy for 10 years, followed by 10 more years with the Navy as a civil servant in an anti-submarine warfare program. No doubt it was an important experiential element of his background in his role at the ARRB. Horn made a final revision to an internal memo dated June 2, 1998, almost two years after he wrote his initial draft. 
The subject line reads simply, questions regarding supplementary brain examinations following the autopsy of President John F. Kennedy. It was a purposeful drafting of that subject line to put the S for plural in parentheses at the end of the word examination. Some of what follows is selected verbatim reading from the memo, which, by the way, is over 30 pages long, so we can't read the whole thing here. And it's a complicated maze of information, a maze of which would be easy for any of us to get totally lost in. What I am going to try and do is extract the more important aspects and arguments contained in the document and try to present them here in a bit more simplified fashion. And that includes some portions of the memo itself when doing so. And you can be the judge of how well the translation goes, as I have posted the full copy of the Doug Horn memo in its entirety on our podcast website at www.podcastjfk.com under episode 83. Hope you have a minute to peruse the details. And once I do all that, then, finally, at the end, we'll pivot to certain elements of the audio testimony of John Stringer. Even though some of his testimony is conflicting, he, too, had a hard time believing that certain of the autopsy photos of the brain, those in the official collection, are ones that he took, and thus may have been taken by someone else and not authentic. So here we go. And again, this is the final revision dated June 2, 1998, of the memorandum for file written by Doug Horn entitled Questions Regarding the Supplementary Brain Examinations Following the Autopsy on President John F. Kennedy. The memo's opening remarks are a good summary, and I'll read them verbatim to you now. A review of HSCA records coupled with attempts by ARRB staff to clarify the record of President Kennedy's autopsy by interviewing and deposing witnesses and by studying the chain of custody, the autopsy protocol, and autopsy photographs and x-rays. Well, all that has revealed a pattern of circumstantial evidence indicating that two different brains may have been examined subsequent to the completion of the autopsy on the body of John F. Kennedy. Corroborating evidence in support of the hypothesis that there were examinations of two different brains about one week apart, each of which was represented to its audience as the brain of President Kennedy, has accumulated as the ARRB staff has proceeded in its work, and as a result, the author feels it is time to place the hypothesis on record. The implications of two such events having taken place and specifically in such a manner that one of the two examinations must have been a brain which was not President Kennedy's, but which was knowingly represented as such, are of obvious importance and would be difficult to overstate. The goal of this memo, however, will be limited primarily to simply marshalling and exposing the circumstantial documentary evidence which indicates that two separate brain examinations, both supplemental to the autopsy on the body of President Kennedy, may have occurred about one week apart in late November 1963, contrary to the official record as it has heretofore been presented to the American people. Horn believes that the first brain examination, which he labels brain examination number one, 
took place approximately Monday, November 25, 1963, stating that a large body of evidence of support for that date of the first review. And it's the review that probably included the president's brain. I'll enumerate the most important supporting facts and details surrounding exam number one. Item number one, Dr. Boswell, in his sworn testimony, indicates that the brain was examined two or three days after the autopsy. Number two, Dr. Boswell also indicates that himself, Dr. Humes, Dr. Carney, and a couple of technicians were present. Number three, in testimony, Boswell was unsure whether the brain had undergone a serial section. That's odd, isn't it? Well, that he couldn't remember something like that. Keep that top of mind as we conclude on all of this. Number four, now, this is where Stringer comes in, and initially, it's his HSCA interview conducted by Andy Purdy. Stringer recalled that Humes and Boswell were present along with him at the brain examination. Stringer was interviewed twice, and in the initial interview, he indicated that the brain was sectioned, but he didn't specify how, and it seemed to imply, based on Doug Horn's interpretation, that it was a serial sectioning. Yet, during Stringer's second interview, he said something different, something to the effect that perhaps, although the doctors did cut some pieces from the brain, they did not section serially. Oh, well, we'll get back to that in a minute. It appears as if Mr. Horn has experienced some of the similar problems with Stringer's testimony that we've already heard so far in what has already been presented by Stringer. Number five, Horn cites a JAMA article published on May 27, 1992, on page 2800, where the author of that article quoted Dr. Humes as saying that the family, meaning the Kennedy family, told me that they wanted to inter the brain with the president's body. Since the president was buried in a sealed mahogany casket inside a heavy 3,000-pound vault permanently sealed with tar and in a public gravesite at Arlington beneath the apparatus of an eternal flame, Horn believes that this statement attributed to Dr. Berkeley implies that Humes was pressured by Berkeley to perform the supplementary brain examination prior to the November 25, 1963 state funeral of President Kennedy. Item number six, Elsie Clausen was the secretary for Admiral Galloway. You'll recall Admiral Galloway from our prior episodes. It seems Ms. Clausen typed up the original autopsy report on a Sunday, that is, November 24th, and then typed up the supplemental report, and I quote, a few days later. A few days after Sunday, November 24, 1963, that is. Horn points out that the supplemental autopsy report that's been around as a piece of evidence for many years contains a handwritten date on it of December 6, 1963. And apparently, for many years, assassination researchers believed that this December 6 date was the date of the actual supplemental autopsy. Based on the work done by the JAMA article author, Dennis Brayo, it appears as if the December 6th date was actually the date the report itself was transmitted and not the date the supplemental autopsy was conducted. Item number seven. On February 13, 1996, Dr. Humes gave a deposition to the ARRB, and it was generally supportive of the Boswell and Stringer recollections of a brain exam shortly after the autopsy. Number eight, 
In that deposition, Jeremy Gunn asked Dr. Humes if any sections had been taken out of the brain. He would answer, and I quote, not at that time. We did take certain sections day or two later, whatever it was from the location. We didn't divide the brain like we often do. You know, we often make a so-called bread loaf type incision, but we didn't do that with this brain because the next thing you know, George Berkeley wanted it. We might have gone on to do that, but when he came and said that they wanted the brain, fine, you know, I'm not going to argue about it. Listen to that one closely. It might be perjury. Number nine, Gunn would go on to ask Humes more specifically, did the examination of the brain happen within one or two days of the original autopsy date? And Humes said, yes, shortly after. I can't tell you what day now. Item number 10, during the deposition, Humes would actually have two recollections about the date of that event. First, thinking that it took place one or two days after the original autopsy, and then subsequently testifying that after thinking about it, first thinking that it took place one or two days after the original autopsy, and then subsequently testifying that after thinking about it more, he believed it took place shortly about two days after the protocol was delivered to Berkeley on Sunday, November 24th, 1963, the protocol being the original autopsy report. That would put the date on or about Tuesday. What does all this mean with Humes? It means that Humes might be saying that the examination of the brain probably took place on Monday or Tuesday, the 25th or the 26th. And those dates coincide nicely with the timing that Elsie Clausen indicated related to when she typed up the supplemental autopsy report. Her recollection of a Sunday typing on November 22nd for the original autopsy report and then typing two or three days later of the supplemental report. That would put a couple of days between the supplemental exam, which Horn believes likely happened on Monday the 25th, and her typing of the report on Tuesday the 25th or Wednesday the 26th. Number 12. The president's official state funeral happened on Monday afternoon, November 25th. And so, given the pressure by Admiral Berkeley to have the brain back so that it could be interred with the president, makes it likely they expedited the review of the brain and completed the work on Monday morning before the funeral. Item number 13. Finally, Dr. Boswell's deposition on February 26, 1996, to the ARRB somewhat nails all of this down. Boswell testified with some certainty that the supplemental brain examination occurred on Monday, November 25, 1963, and he also testified that he believed Dr. Humes relinquished the brain to Admiral Berkeley on that same day, Monday. Dr. Boswell was quite vivid in his recollections in the deposition, and I quote Dr. Boswell, we had a neuropathologist from the Air Force Institute of Pathology come over and we took the brain out of the formalin after it was fixed, a couple of days in fact, uh, later, on Monday, and we put it back in the formalin and it was delivered to Admiral Berkeley in a bucket. Boswell would go on to say, and I quote, I believe it was on Monday because we wrote up an addendum to the autopsy. I think on Monday, after we had examined the brain, and I think he, referring to Jim Humes, 
took the paraffin blocks and the tissue slides with the brain and the addendum down to Admiral Berkeley on Monday. Item 15. Boswell clarified in his own testimony that the brain was not serially sectioned and that only partial sections of the brain were taken at the supplementary brain exam. Item 16. Boswell would claim that the attendees included himself, Dr. Humes, John Stringer, the photographer, and then Air Force Institute of Pathology neuropathologist Dr. Richard Davis. And he was fairly sure that Dr. Fink was not there, not present. Interestingly, Boswell did indicate that a total of approximately 15 people may have been present at this autopsy proceeding. Interestingly enough, I've never seen a pursuit as to who the other 10 or so people were that were there, if they were, in fact, there. Perhaps a fertile ground for future researchers, or at least a fact that needs to be brought to the forefront if we already know who they were. Is it possible that they saw something that that day should be on the record? Is it possible this statement was really just covered by the doctor? Item number 17. Before Stringer participated in a deposition, he was interviewed by Doug Horn on April 8, 1996, over the telephone. Stringer conveyed five distinct facts that were notable to Horn in that telephone interview. First, the brain exam was two or three days after the autopsy. Second, it occurred on a work day in the morning. Third, the brain was serially sectioned, which is an assumption by Horn as Stringer characterized it as being cut up like a piece of meat. Fourth, the individual sections, once they were cut, were laid out on a light box and then photographed next to ID tags. And Stringer took the pictures. Remember this one especially when you hear Stringer's testimony a little bit later. And lastly, Dr. Humes and Dr. Boswell were present along with the corpsman. However, Fink was probably not present. Item number 18. Stringer would describe what went on after he was called down to the autopsy, indicating, and I quote, that they took it out, meaning the brain, and put it on the table and then described it and then took some sections of it. We took some pictures of it. I had a copy board there with the light coming from the well, which was underneath, and with the lights down on it, and we shot pictures of the brain as it was being sectioned. Jeremy Gunn would ask, and Stringer would answer yes when asked if the sections were small pieces or cross-sections of the entire brain. And Stringer said, if I remember, it was cross-sections. And when asked what the purpose was of doing this, Stringer did respond clearly, saying, to show the damage. Item number 19. Here is where it gets interesting with Stringer. He clearly had a problem with the photographs that he was shown that were apparently taken that day of the brain and now were part of the official autopsy collection at the National Archives. Item number 20. When shown all the photographs of the brain, it was pretty clear that they were a basilar view or a view of the brain taken from below. Stringer was adamant that he had taken no basilar views, which meant that he did not take these photographs. So who did? Item 21. There was more. You heard earlier that he used identification cards in the photographs that he took to identify the various sections of the brain as the photographs were taken. 
Item 22. In the pictures that are contained in the National Archives, there are a number of pictures of the brain that contain no identification cards. This was another fact that allowed Stringer to easily conclude that he had not taken these pictures. So who did take them? And whose brain was it that they took a picture of? And why were they doing this? And who was doing this? All the obvious questions start to flow here. Item 23. Jeremy Gunn asked Stringer very directly, based upon these being Bassler reviews of a brain, and based upon there being no identification cards, are you able to identify with certainty whether these photographs before you now are photographs of the brain of President Kennedy? Item 24. Stringer would answer back, no. I couldn't say that they were President Kennedy's brain. I mean, there's no identification. Stringer would also go on to testify that he used duplex film holders during the supplemental brain exam and that he did not use a press pack, which is a particular film holder type. He would also say that the color film he shot was ectochrome and that if he had shot black and white film, it would have been pan. It goes on and on. Negatives from a press pack are easily recognizable and Stringer identified the negatives of these particular autopsy photographs of the brain as being from a press pack. He did not use press packs. And it was a press pack that used ANSCO film, which he wasn't routinely using at that time for autopsies, and that he clearly stated he was not using that day to take photographs of President Kennedy. He was asked, and he clearly answered, that he did not take the photographs of the brain that he was asked to review that day in the deposition. Photographs that came straight from the National Archives. And photographs that to this day remain at the National Archives and are designated as the official photographs of the autopsy, even though the official autopsy photographer denies ever taking them. Yet, how could that be? These photos of the brain. Item 27. Stringer made similar statements regarding the superior view of the brain when it came to the absence of identification markers. It was another clear indication to Stringer that he'd also not taken those views of the brain that were now, again, securely in the archives as an official autopsy photo. Item 28. Maybe more fantastic than most facts is none of the official photos in the archive show any sectioning of the brain whatsoever. Item 29. It was Stringer's recollection that they had sectioned the brain that day and that photos of the sections, along with the identification markers, should have been contained in the photo collection, and they were not. Item 30. With all that in mind, what is it that Doug Horn concluded about brain examination number one? Well, the following is it, verbatim. Let me read the concluding excerpt from the memo regarding exam number one. Here we go. This apparent event, that is, the initial brain examination, probably took place on Monday morning, November 25, 1963, based on Robert Kennedy's insistence that the brain be interred with a body and in the context of a Monday afternoon state funeral, and Boswell's firm recollection in his ARRB testimony that Monday was the day of the brain examination, coupled with the Boswell and Stringer recollections recorded by the HSCA of a brain examination 
two or three days after the initial autopsy. And then Hume's ARRB testimony that the brain exam took place after he returned the protocol to Berkeley on Sunday. All of this argues strongly for Monday as the most likely date by far for this event number one. Tuesday seems less likely since the chance to inter the brain with the body had passed and a Tuesday brain examination does not fit the HSCA recollections of Boswell and Stringer of a brain examination conducted within two or three days of the autopsy. Furthermore, the president's brain, which Dr. Boswell recalls having been returned to Dr. Berkeley on the same day that it was examined, that is Monday, was most likely interred with the president's body subsequent to the public ceremony of the funeral after the dispersal of the large public crowds following the end of the TV coverage of the funeral events and prior to sealing the casket inside the 3,000-pound vault. It seems likely, based upon the ARRB deposition of John Stringer in July 1996, that although John Stringer did photograph the supplemental brain examination held shortly after the autopsy, the photos of a brain in the National Archives today are not the photographs that he took at that event. The author therefore concludes that those photographs in the National Archives today, which represented to depict the brain of President Kennedy, are photographs of a different brain and are not images of President Kennedy's brain. This is based on the fact that, one, Stringer, Humes, and Boswell have always claimed that Stringer was the sole photographer at the brain examination, and two, Stringer only attended one brain examination, and three, Stringer feels reasonably certain he did not take the brain photographs that are now contained at the archives. It seems highly likely that Dr. Humes and Dr. Boswell and photographer John Stringer were all present at the first brain examination and that Dr. Fink was not. Although Dr. Boswell told the HSCA in 1977 that Dr. Carney and probably Corman Mason were also present at the brain examination and subsequently testified to the ARRB in 1966 that Air Force Institute of Pathology neuropathologist Dick Davis and numerous others were present. Now, no other witnesses have yet corroborated these recollections regarding the presence of Dr. Carney and Dr. Davis. In fact, Doctors Carney and Davis have themselves both denied to the ARRB in unsworn interviews that they were present. Therefore, although it is possible his recollections of additional attendees are accurate, in the absence of independent corroboration, the author cannot treat these claims with the same degree of confidence as the presence of Humes, Boswell, and Stringer. The issue of who likely attended which brain examination will be discussed when we address brain examination number two. Well, as I mentioned in the prologue, this is a really long little mini-series, and I think we're at a really good stopping point, and we can finish the rest of this episode up in episode 84. So, see you there. Thank you for listening to episode 83 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 